This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. I took some time reading through all the contracts, reading through everything. There was a couple sticking points for me, but ultimately, and I also had the guts to ask, uh, I negotiated some things. I negotiated Mm -hmm. some salary and some PTO. Mm Mm-hmm which was something I never would have done before. I just was like, no, I need this salary and I need this PTO. Like, just matter of fact. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay. And I was kind of like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, I'm going to have a job. And they wanted me to start pretty quickly. And I'm like, internally, I'm like, I am not in the emotional state to be starting a job right now. And I was like, well, the earliest I can start is, and I put like a day out as if I was like currently working for a company. I hadn't actually told them. I, I don't think I told them I was laid off mm-hmm. or anything. And they're like, oh, that's fine. You can do that. And I was like, and I need to go on vacation that weekend because I didn't say why, but it was, it was a retreat. It was mm. one of the workshop retreats that weekend. They're like, oh yeah, you can do that. That's fine. I was like, okay, that's cool. And I started the job and we had a training meeting that next week and the supervisor comes to me and he says, this is probably TMI. And I feel a little bit on guard, like, uh oh, what am I about to hear about? <laughs> and he said, we had over a hundred resumes for this position. And I had, and it'd been open since before I'd lost my job. Mm. It'd been open like, I think half the year almost. He's like, and I, I interviewed 15 candidates and your resume came because I decided I would check one last time. And your resume came in that batch and I looked at it, felt like it might be a good mix. And when we interviewed, your questions were exactly what we'd been talking about and we're mm. looking for. And I, I wanted you like, I was blown away. Hmm, Nice. I was like, I think I went home and said a very heartfelt thank you to my higher power that night. Here I was, I'd said, I turned my job search over to you and like what I had done at my old job and what they were looking for was almost like an exact match. And I, I felt a little overwhelmed to have been the candidate that got picked after having had like a hundred resumes. Right. And I just felt a deep sense of gratitude to my higher power for that. And I think it was really one of those moments in recovery that kind of builds your faith in, in the steps, in step two, step three, and that you're, you're loved, mm-hmm. that you're not alone. And so I started this new job, but I still was having issues just having like panic attacks at work. Like I'd be so anxious. I'd go walk around the track. I'd try and do whatever I could, but I couldn't seem, I couldn't seem to shake it. And I mean, in the midst of all of this, our group kind of is going and everything else is going, but I'm not, because of all of this, I'm not really able, I think, to actively have participated in the group to the level I would have liked Mm -hmm. to, and that perhaps others needed me to. Right. Well, and, and is this a good time to talk about, because, you know, you had gone from acting out and some compulsive behavior, and then you had gotten some stretches of sobriety, right? And then you kind of swung to the other end of the pendulum. Yes, I think that's a great segue. Okay. I think that film was that pendulum swing for me. Mm-hmm. Everything in my life became revolved around, I can't lust, I can't... It was this agitation. Like, if if I just noticed somebody's body or sexuality or I couldn't... Or a lyric in a song. A lyric in a song. I turned off the radio in my car. I wouldn't listen to music. I stopped shopping because I couldn't handle... I would just... I was so scared of what background music might be playing in the store. Yeah. 
And I was so scared of maybe lusting from it. Uh-huh. I was so scared that maybe, maybe I would relapse, that maybe from all of this, like, I wouldn't be sober anymore. Like, I had worked so hard to be sober. Like, no matter what happened, I had to stay sober. Uh-huh. And these, these tools that had helped me get sober, I started using, I kind of want to say obsessively. Yeah, to the other extreme, right, where there was deprivation and there was anorexia. Yeah. I actually lost a fair amount of weight during Mm -hmm. this time. I was struggling to eat, which was unusual for me. I just felt so much shame around eating. I couldn't. I was hungry, but it was like I had too much shame to be able to eat, which was really weird for me. I was like, I, I love food. Like, if you could see me, you can clearly see I love food. And I have my whole life. And suddenly I couldn't eat. And one of the best ways I was trying to work through all of this energy and fear and tension was I was starting to swim a lot. I was starting to run a lot. Just make sure I was always walking laps outside at work to try and work through it. And these kind of became my new coping mechanisms to try and work through it. And I think I kind of detached myself from the group at this point. Mm -hmm. You kind of really closed in on yourself. Yeah, like sort of this almost like they can't help me they don't understand this I don't know if it was that they don't understand this it was just you didn't understand it yeah thank you I didn't understand what was going on and I think it was freaking me out I was Uh like I don't know what's going on and I don't know how to fix it and 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 I think when we're in that state right like we kind of know we can't control other people and if I need to be in control I'm just gonna eliminate people in my life because I can't control them, so I'm just going to really limit and isolate so that I can control myself. Yeah. Some of those recovery processes that, you know, I had a I had a box under my bed for, like, an emergency kit. Like, I almost started doing that, like, at least three times a week. My clothes stopped fitting because I had lost so much weight, but I was too scared to go to the store because mm-hmm. I was so afraid of the music that would be there that I went down to only having one pair of jeans that fit and I really only wear jeans so that I only had one pair of pants that fit Mm -hmm. and they looked like three sizes too big Mm -hmm. on me I was gonna say fit (laughs) they didn't quite fit like I think I came once and you're like I think you need some smaller jeans there (laughs) and it was actually really incredibly emotionally painful all Mm -hmm. of that like it was like I was constantly trying to control my emotional inner state and make sure that at all costs I didn't act out and it was it was an obsession Mm -hmm. like it was an absolute overriding all-on obsession to make sure that I well and and I would say the fear of acting out was even more intense than like actually you acting out Mm -hmm. like you weren't acting out you didn't even get that close to acting out but there was such incredible fear that you might that I couldn't even live my life right Like, at all. I couldn't leave the Mm -hmm. house some days. Mm -hmm. I ended up going to Instacare for... I started having heart palpitations, Mm -hmm. but I'd never felt it before. So I ended up having to go to Instacare and get an EKG, and they had me wear a heart monitor for a week, Mm -hmm. which scared me half to death. I was like, I'm pretty young. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with my heart. And there wasn't. There wasn't It was just this panic and stress. Yeah. The anxiety. Uh Uh-huh. And nothing was really, like, I mean, I just kept getting, I think when you're running your body at that high of a level, it takes its toll. And I kept kind of getting sick. Mm-hmm. And I became afraid of passing out, actually. Because mm-hmm. I said I'd, I'd almost passed out at work that one time. And I became scared of passing out. 
And it just, it felt like all these fears were starting to like just accumulate and rule my life. And I think maybe one of the times I went to Instacare, the doctor was like, how's, how's your life like stress-wise and other stuff? And I kind of was like, uh, not good. <laughs> and I think some of, I, I did have one connection with someone in the group. And I think she had suggested to me some like anti-anxiety medication, mm-hmm, possibly. Mm-hmm. But I had dismissed it out of hand because one of my fears was taking medication, which is another story. But... Mm-hmm. So I was unwilling to take medication for any of this. It was like, I'll solve this by myself. Right. I'll figure this I'll out. I'll just head down, power through. Yeah. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was what I was doing. It wasn't working. I had gone. I'd missed the meeting because I think I'd had a... I was starting to have panic attacks around meetings, actually. And having a hard time just going to meetings. Mm-hmm. And I had missed the meeting one morning. And there happened to be a different, meet, a different women's ACA meeting. And I went to that. And the topic happened to be on pain and the whole thing, our whole reading, our whole everything happened to be on like how much pain we're willing to endure Mm. and how much pain we'll live with in our lives for how long. And I started shaking and started sweating and they were like, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm not okay. And so I ended up going to the Instacare that day again. And I was driving home and it was like this part of me took over my body and drove to my re- this recovery friend's house. Like, mm. hey, I'm here to stay for the weekend. Can I stay at your house? And she was like, sure, of course. And I showed up like, like sans PJs, sans, like without anything. And so we took a trip to Walmart and got me an air mattress and some PJs, et cetera. And she's like, you can stay here as long as you need to. And that was kind of enough of a respite from the intense panic. I let my supervisor know, like, I had to go to Instacare. I'm not okay. I'm not going to be at work tomorrow. I'm not quite sure when I'm going to be back. And I spent that day. I went out again. I found some woods. And that that kind of is my higher power place in nature. And I remember just being in so much pain and just sobbing and saying, I don't think I was meant to live with this much pain. Like, I feel like in more pain than I felt like when I started recovery right now. Like, I'm not okay. Like, something is really wrong. And I just kept sobbing that day. Like, just really intense sobs. And somewhere in there, I just, I was like, I'm willing to do medication. I need medication. I need, I need a psychiatrist and I need one now. Mm-hmm. And I do have issues with taking medicine and ibuprofen for whatever reason I think I had thrown away my ibuprofen that time maybe I know I did at least once Mm -hmm. because I couldn't even handle taking ibuprofen yeah I remember we had that conversation and you didn't have it yeah you had told me that you you had thrown it away yeah I had thrown it away because I I had so much fear around taking it that Mm -hmm. I I'd thrown it and so then I was super helpful and told you that too much Tylenol can also cause damage (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's right (laughs) But somehow I didn't have that emotional tie to Tylenol. So I was able to take some Tylenol, which is funny because the doses I took with Tylenol were actually higher than if I'd taken the ibuprofen. But it gave me enough reprieve that it kind of, it kind of calmed down my system a little bit. And in all of that, I said, God, I need a psychiatrist and I need one now. Mm -hmm. I'm not okay. And I was able to come home and my neighborhood there was some people in my neighborhood whose daughter dealt with some health issues that were similar they came over to my house they helped me they they prayed with me I was incredibly grateful for that 
I was incredibly grateful for the reaction of those around me. I was dealt again, like right after the movie, with some really helpful and caring and kind responses. Mm -hmm. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. I found out that psychiatrists are like three months out in the valley. Super hard to get into them. And somehow I, after kind of getting a little depressed and probably dealing with panic attacks, so I didn't call, I called in. I just had this thought, like, call in this certain place. And they're like, oh, we can get you in tomorrow. And I was like, you can? (laughs) They're like, yeah, come in tomorrow at such and such a time. And I went in and the psychiatrist, like, started talking to me. And I I ended up getting a diagnosis. And you and I had started kind of talking about, like, maybe I had some OCD stuff Mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. And... I ended up going through this like thing around OCD and getting an official diagnosis of OCD along with generalized anxiety disorder and depression. And I walked out of that office. I think I wanted to put my arms up into the air and be like, yes, I have a name for my problem. (laughs) I'd actually had issues with OCD since I was 20, but they had always gone unaddressed because there was other issues in my life. And for whatever reason, at this particular time, they were flaring up beyond what I could deal mm-hmm. with. And so I started on medication. And I remember I actually had an interesting thing happen before I found the psychiatrist. I'd gone immediately to my own personal doctor and she'd given me medication. And I had called someone that was a nurse and been like, hey, like, this is how this went. This was the medication. And she was kind of like, that doesn't sound right. Like, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't think she was listening to you. And I was like, I don't feel like she was listening to me either. And so I held off on taking any medication until I ended up getting to that psychiatrist. And when I got to that psychiatrist, I brought the medication the other doctor had given me. And she's like, that is the wrong medication for Mm. you. It's a really good thing you hadn't taken that. And I was kind of like, okay, like, I'm glad I listened to my gut Mm -hmm. and didn't take that medication. And I just had this strong feeling like my life's going to get better. Like, it's going to be okay. Like, this medication is going to help. And I will say, I think it's been a game changer for me. I feel like a functional adult again. Mm-hmm. I think you've seen that change. I hadn't seen much of that in our work together. Because I, I got you after you had watched the movie. Right? Mm-hmm. So I got you pretty young. I mean, I saw some of it in the group. Right? But I didn't really know you. I mean, you would tell me sometimes. Like, I I am this person. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I mean, I believed you. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay. But we were working through some some of that dark period. Yeah. Yeah. Through the EMDR and everything. And that movie, really what that movie led me to realize is that at some point in my life, I had been sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. And I had no solid memories of it. I just had these body memories that were Mm -hmm. coming out that I was trying to force down and not fill. And, and it it was a really dark time Mm -hmm. for me emotionally. And I was pretty shut down Mm -hmm. and secluded. I would say scared and scared. I was really scared. And I think this was the beginning of opening up again mm-hmm. and and really becoming back to a healthier me. Yeah. A healthier back to person. wholeness. Yeah. And in the midst of, I would say, at about the same time, like I was hitting my rock bottom with anorexia, the group had been having some issues all along. And I don't know that I was aware of all of it just because I, as we mentioned, I'd kind of take myself out of the mm-hmm. group. But the group was starting to fall apart at the seams. And I remember one time having a recover, somebody outside of our circle be like, kind of like, that was also in recovery, kind of be like, what's happening? What's going on? And and for the sake of not breaking anonymity, I was like, okay, let's do an analogy that the group is like a human body. 
And the person that's taking care of this human body is like, you know, what? I think I see some eczema here and there and maybe some rashes and a couple of bruises. I think we might want to have like come together and be like, what's going on? Like, I'm seeing some stuff here. And by the time that like what's going on meeting had happened, we had gone from we have a few bruises and a few a little bit of eczema to we've had a full on heart attack and we're in the ICU. We're not sure if we're going to live. And that's the best way I know kind of how to explain it with really out saying anything that happened. Mm -hmm. And we kind of came to that point where we all realized we're in the ICU. We don't know if this group's going to live. And I sometimes couldn't come to groups because of my panic attacks, but I was trying, but it was hard for me just to be in the room, to be honest. Ultimately, the group ended up falling apart. And, you know, that body that was in the ICU did end up dying. Mm -hmm. And the group, as I had known it for all those years and had loved it, was no more. And I think that's caused a lot of grief for me. I think I always had this dream of the women's group kind of like being the standard for we were the largest group in the nation as far as I was aware and I think I just always thought of it as kind of this dream of this group could be the beginning of so many other women's group and we could actually have women in recovery and to see the death of this group and and when a group dies like this it's not like a person's death where you have a funeral and you do a eulogy and you do everything else I think it's hard to grieve. I think everyone has different issues. I think everyone has different things they're struggling with, different thoughts, different feelings, different everything. And I think it's just hard to grieve. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's a loss of something. I think there was a lot of hurt individuals and the group hurt too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was, you can hear in my voice, that still makes me sad. I spent some of my best years in recovery in that group. And they got me through some really hard things, Mm -hmm. and I'm really grateful for them. Um, At that same time, though, I was realizing the extent to which my anorexia was taking me down and was realizing that I personally needed to part ways from SA as a whole. Because SA, while it had worked in the early beginnings of my recovery, doesn't address sexual anorexia and doesn't address these unhealthy behaviors. And so it was almost like it reached a point where I was looked up to for my like, oh my gosh, you like surrender lust and you do this and you do that and you do that. And it was like, this isn't a healthy thing. Like this Mm -hmm. is like, I'm not okay. Like I'm really actually quite an unhealthy member of this group here. Like this isn't a behavior to be praised, but not really knowing how to express that. I'm probably taking the praise and being like, well, awesome. Cool. Thank you. And so my, my timing of parting ways ended up kind of coinciding with the group falling apart. And I think for the first six months, it was kind of one of those things where it was, I'd always just gotten up on Saturday morning and gone to group. And I think I I was lost Mm. for a while. Like, what do I do with myself? Like, I I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I tried some SAA meetings for the avoidance meetings. I specifically wanted women's meetings, but those are held during the middle of the day when I'm at work. So that didn't work for me. I tried a quote mixed meeting. Yeah, I was the only girl. Woman, sorry, I'm a woman. <laughs> and I didn't really connect with the few meetings that I went to. Like it didn't quite fit for me. And then I tried I did Al Anon for a while as kind of just this bridge of like I need just a meeting to like it actually was really helpful. I learned some good things in there. I think the Anon meetings work really well around relational issues. Yeah. And then I did some ACA stuff again um, on an intermittent basis. I have a little bit of like 
am I going to end up in the Instacare when I go to an ACA meeting? <laughs> I joked about that, like, the second time I went to a meeting and we all laughed because it happened to be in a hospital where, like, the Instacare oh. was down the hall. And I'm like, well, if something goes south, like, it's just right there, so I'll be okay. And I, I ended up forming a really good friendship with someone actually out of the country. And I think that became one of my anchor points, hmm. that relationship. And I, I think I kind of just kind of held on to that and did the best I could. And as the months passed and the medication kicked in and started working, I started becoming a lot healthier. Fortunately and unfortunately, I gained back all the weight I lost. I would have loved to have not gained back the weight, but I think the way in which I lost it was unhealthy. And so now I'm back to kind of my old weight and really not knowing where to go next with recovery. I had talked to a fellow recovery person one time and she was like, let's do an essay meeting. And I just was like, I can't, like, I, I can't do an essay meeting. That, that sends me back into that anorexic stuff so fast. Now. Mm -hmm. And we had this whole conversation. And I honestly haven't really been able to connect with SAA and the avoidance meetings, which are supposed to be the sexual anorexic meetings. And most of the literature has very little about sexual anorexia. Right. And I feel like when you tell people that you have sexual anorexia, they're kind of like, what is that? Like, I don't, I don't understand. And it's kind of like I have to spell out my story of... Like, not being able to go to shots, not being able to listen to music, like, everything. And I came up with this idea of doing a new women's recovery. I, I felt like it needed a merging of sobriety definitions. Like, it needed the strictness early on of the SA sobriety definition, but the kind of three-circle approach of the SAA later on. And so I kind of, I ended up drafting a proposed, like, sobriety definition for a new mm -hmm. group. And I actually was really, really excited, like yeah, we can do a new women's group. We can do it this way. We can do it that way. And then I was doing a writing class, which was pulling up a lot of stuff for me from childhood. And then we had one more retreat and the numbers fell last minute. And I think I lost some hope when I saw mm -hmm. those fallen numbers a little bit of like, how's this going to work? How will this be any different this time? Mm -hmm. Like what's going to like the last one didn't work for me. Like I can't go back to that. I need something different, but what is it and how's it going to come about? And I kind of lost that enthusiasm and I haven't fully been able to pick it up yet mm. since mm -hmm. then. I think I've been in a little bit of a funk. I've had a lot of different ideas for it. I've, I've thought about actually parting ways from the 12 steps. I feel like as long as it's a 12 step group, it'll always go back to the Alcoholics Anonymous, which originally was 101 men and the reason that it didn't get published that way was because of the one woman that showed up so it mm -hmm. made the title of alcohol story of women in recovery right yeah one shows up yeah darn it all and it throws the program into disarray <laughs> yeah so i figured as long as it was based on the 12 steps like as much as i'm grateful for them and the wisdom in there right it would go back to the men mm -hmm. and so i thought i felt heretical kind of saying that like, I think there actually needs to be something outside of 12 steps mm -hmm. for women. I remember asking you, like, do therapists even realize that this isn't working? Like, are they aware that women aren't getting traction? Are they aware that these resources aren't quite working? Just trying to gather information and mm -hmm. see what other people's experiences is. I mean, we've talked for a while now about my story, and it seems like time after time after time after time, like, I had to fight like crazy mm -hmm. 
to get what I needed. And good thing I'm stubborn. Like, that's what got me through a lot Mm -hmm. of that early recovery was that absolute stubbornness of like, this is what I want. And this is what I'm looking for. And it's just not working. And so I would love to find a way like I'd even thought about not even calling it like sex addiction, but like, well, because a lot of females don't identify with that label. We had that discussion, right? Just where a lot of women have a complex um, relationship with even that label. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think sexuality is complex for females. And so what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I think that's still undefined or it's still undetermined what will work for women. What do women resonate with? How do women need to approach intimacy and sexual healing and recovery? Yeah. And I have a feeling I'm not the only sexual anorexic Mm -hmm. out there. Given the culture that I live in, I would never have called myself a sexaholic or a sex addict. Like my sexual acting out behavior brought me to those things. But at base, really, I'm an anorexic. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like now I don't even feel like I can call myself like a sex addict. I don't feel like I identify with that. I, I'm i in this phase of trying to like no longer be anorexic and figure out how to date and how to have relationships and how to do everything else. And I have a feeling that there are others like that Mm -hmm. out there. And if we can title it different, if I can title it different or whatever, that that can maybe attract a larger pool of women who identify with that. Mm -hmm. Um, The the whole reason I started the writing memoir group, I started a creative nonfiction class with the goal being, I was like, there's no book written by women for women. And actually, that's not true, because I did find a 12-step book written by a woman with a PhD who was Mm -hmm. a therapist and had run an inpatient clinic. And I loved her book. I actually, I did a presentation up at that retreat, and I relied heavily on her material. I really appreciated it. And she spoke to some of the differences that women have in recovery. But I found that after I'd kind of had this first, like, nobody else is going to do it, then dang it, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And So I started this creative nonfiction class and kind of got writing and in the process, I think kind of ended up delving into my own personal stuff that needed working out and haven't quite gotten to that Mm -hmm. space of writing that yet. And plus, I I realized in that process, like if I'm going to do a group, if I'm going to try and do some of the stuff, like it's maybe time to sit with my first step Mm -hmm. and to recover and heal from that. And so I, I opened that back up. Right. And I did. I just finished a memoir class. Um, I did a three week class on writing a memoir, all of which, I mean, I don't really consider myself a writer, but it's just one of those situations where I feel like I can write down my thoughts and I can find a professional and bring it to them and help them refine. And in the process of taking these writing classes, I actually think I know now someone who I could do that with. Mm. And she has a lot of emotional awareness as well. I would trust her to do that kind of stuff. And so I don't know where it will go from here. I think some days I get really excited about it. And like, I've had some days at work where, don't tell my boss this, but I've kind of been like doodling with ideas as I'm on the clock. Then I'm like, nope, no, back to work. Like, gotta go back to work. I'm like, oh, okay, like put that over there. Like Mm -hmm. we can work on it after work. But that's my hope. My hope is that something can change for women that Mm -hmm. they don't have to go through all of the crazy situations that I went through. That they don't have to like navigate being the token female and sex addiction recovery, but, and that somehow we can work together to heal as women so that we can actually keep a group together, mm-hmm. like, and not have the backbiting and the gossiping and the subversion and the everything else. And competition. And that's a really large task. Mm-hmm. Like, 
I, I honestly don't know how to take on that task. And I think that's kind of where I've stalled out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think I initially had a lot of gung-ho energy excitement around it. And then I kind of stalled out. And I was like, I, this is big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit bigger yeah. than just me. So just for listeners, we don't have an answer that's coming at the end of this podcast. If you've listened to what we're at almost two and a half hours, if you've listened to all of this, we still don't have an answer that we're going to spring on you at the end of this podcast. Mm-mm. But as Marie and I have talked, there has been some, you know, put it out there, even though we don't necessarily have a call to action or a solution or an idea of what what the next steps are. There probably are women who are look, listening to this podcast and saying, like, this really resonates with me or I have similar some similar experiences and, and maybe coming together and having some ideas and getting women who are looking for some type of sexual healing something. Yeah. Uh-huh. I agree. Yeah. Um, I had hoped, and I haven't done this yet, it may or may not happen, but I had hoped to kind of put a survey out to just mm-hmm. kind of start the process of collecting data. I had mentioned earlier in the podcast getting laughed at by my one therapist for the female ejaculation. And then my second male therapist wasn't educated enough to give the information that I needed around mm-hmm. that. It wasn't actually until I had you as a therapist that you kind of mopped up the two previous therapists yeah, around yeah. that. And I think that was just kind of a lack of education. I don't mm-hmm. know if that was a lack of education, but I think it might also speak to a larger lack of information around women's sexuality and women's mm-hmm. bodies. Um, in the medical field, Mm -hmm. as well as maybe the psychology field and sex addiction field. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that can be worked on. Right. And so that was one of my thoughts I had as I was thinking about all of this. So yeah, if you have some ideas, um, you can contact me through the podcast, or you can, if you do a Google search, you'll be able to find contact information for me. And you can, I can serve as kind of that contact person, passing it along to Marie, seeing what we can do pushing it forward. That would be fantastic. I would really love that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.